Welcome to the Gospel According to with Ryan and Mike, a conversation designed to explore what makes the gospel good news in various books and topics of the Bible. So as we get into Isaiah 47 and 48, we need to again remember that we have multiple players at work in this grand narrative of Isaiah 40 through 55. We've just talked through the coming of Cyrus in 45 and 46, where Cyrus is going to stir up the nations and bring back Israel to the land. But then it begs the question, what about the captors? Mm. Babylon was the nation that took Israel into captivity. God has released and restored his people through the hand of the anointed one. But now what is God going to do with Babylon? A great many prophets before Isaiah have asked this question, but now we get to Isaiah 47 and 48, and we're going to see God's recompense for Babylon. So Mike, take us yeah. through this text. Great setup. Yeah, that's exactly the, the right logical connections, by the way. So just throwing that you out You taught there. me but that, yeah. so I'm glad to hear yeah. that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, maybe that's where I recognize the brilliance yeah. of it. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, anyway. Um, yeah, so uh, 47 is is a pretty straightforward picture of the fall of Babylon. Um, you could look at it from the perspective of the humiliation of Babylon. Here you have uh, a nation that was so great, so powerful, so glorious, and yet we're seeing them brought down. If you look at 47 verse 1, for example, come down and sit in the dust. O virgin daughter of Babylon, sit on the ground without a throne, O daughter of the Chaldeans. Right? There's a stark contrast in that opening line where not only are they sitting on the ground, uh, sitting in the dust in this place of lowliness and humility, that that lowliness is humility is heightened even more when we recognize that previously they were sitting on not just a chair, but on a throne. Yes. And yes. so from the throne to the dust, and we see you know, the 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 menial sort of servant slaves work they're given, the stripping, the exposing of their nakedness and their shame. Um, and and yet verse six is helpful because it orients us to hey, yeah, before you go there, I do want to make one yeah. note about one to four because yeah. this mm -hmm. is one of my hobbies to talk about. Yeah. Um, yeah. Whenever you know what God is bringing up on Babel, I think the most biblical word we need to use here is not necessarily humiliation, but shame. Yeah, shame. for sure. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. you know, man's like they'll recognize my three-way little chart um, that humility is an act of God's grace. The, the opposite of pride is not humility. The opposite of pride is shame. Mm -hmm. And what God is doing is taking Babylon down from their place of pride. They crowded themselves on being above all of the other nations and took everyone captive. But now yeah. because of their pride, God is bringing them to a place of shame. And yeah. so there's so much of the imagery from Genesis three of shame mm -hmm. and the dust and other nakedness, like, all that yes, stuff. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. They're yeah. playing into this where God is now bringing upon Babylon, the curse of a rebellious creation. Mm -hmm. So yeah. Really. Keep us on. Yeah. Next section. Great. Yeah. Well, well, you know, with this, uh, 
verse verse six gives us a window into God's thinking in all this, right? So so that that shaming, that falling that we're seeing in these first few verses, we're given the the sort of understanding into the why of this. He says in verse six, "I was angry with my people, I profane my heritage, and I gave them into your hand." Right? He's he's explaining why they went into captivity in the first place. But he says, you did not show mercy to them on the age. You made your yoke very heavy. Yet you said, I'll be queen forever. These things you did not consider nor remember the outcome of them. The, the, the first thing we see is their injustice, right? It's not just that Babylon conquered it's the way they ruled. It's the yes. way they oppressed. It's the lack of mercy they showed in their conquest and in their defeat to the point of even the aged um, putting this heavy yoke on them. And, and that injustice with such pride, that statement, I will sit as queen forever, right? They, they saw themselves as invincible. And that, that goes back all the way back to chapter 13 when we saw the initial oracle against Babylon earlier in Isaiah as well. Um, but this pride is so central to their own identity and posture. And yet it's from this supposed high position that God is bringing them all the way down. Yeah. And I mean, something theologically I'd like to observe here is verse six. I think verse six is so important. God says, I was angry with my people. I desecrated my own possession and gave them over to you, but you showed them no mercy. Mm -hmm. There's this language that is used in the book of Matthew of God handing over. And yeah. this is the similar idea here of God giving up his people. Mm -hmm. And yeah. I think if we think of Babylonian captivity as Israel wanted to worship idols and Israel showed no mercy to the helpless, mm -hmm. God gave them up to a people just like them. Yeah. You want to be idolaters? Fine. Go live mm -hmm. in a land filled with idols. Yeah. You want to live lives of injustice? Fine. Go to a land that is filled with injustice. Yeah. So even captivity is God handing Israel over to their own sins. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But now Absolutely. Babylon was given the chance to show mercy. But you didn't do it. Instead, you lived in luxury. You mm -hmm. lived in luxury. I mean, gracious, we need to heed this warning. Yeah, We, absolutely. as 21st century American Christians, need to heed this warning of living lives of luxury while the world around us is starving. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> May we show mercy and learn from the example of Babylon. Yeah. And, and, and while we're talking about this... It, Let's also make sure we see in this the great theme of the great reversal, right? Um, if, if you think back to, say, Hannah's prayer, where she envisions the kings being brought down and those who are down being brought up, that's exactly what we're seeing here with Babylon and, and Israel, right? Um, Israel had been brought down, and yet they're being exalted and restored to glory. Yes. Babylon had exalted themselves. And yet God is bringing them down. And so this, this idea of this great reversal is such an important dimension in understanding God's justice, God's judgment, um, both his retribution and restoration. And we see that played out in this Babylon story. Yeah, well said. Well said. Keep us going. All righty. Um, 
So again, just continuing to to play out this language of this downfall, this shaming. Um, let, let's maybe just pick up on a a, a few of these things. Um, I guess I'll, I'll notice this this line that's repeated twice. If you look at verse eight and you look at the end of verse ten, th- they say in their heart, "I am, and there is no one besides me." One of the things I actually failed to point out in the last episode was the way that line is applied throughout forty five and forty six um, about Yahweh, right? About God. He he. Part of the knowledge of him that he wants. Israel and the nations to receive is there is no God besides him. We sort of talked about that, but I didn't, I didn't say that as explicitly. So that language of there is no one besides me. It's interesting now that that same phrase is now put in the mouth of Babylon. And yet we're seeing how hollow that is. They she says, I will not sit as a widow, no, no, nor no loss of children, but these two things will come on you suddenly in one day, loss of children and widowhood, right? So again, all of this is, is showing, um, again, downfall, shame from this place of pride and, and self-exaltation. Yeah, yeah, I've not heard you make that point before, Mike, but that's it's a very good observation. Um, and then, then the, the section closes by really a sarcastic kind of jabbing, mock taunt to say, okay, you know, to Babylon, well, think about all that you've put your trust in, your sorcerers, your magicians, your diviners, right? Well, call them. They'll save you. Oh, wait, they can't, right? And so um, this picture of, again, it just continues to build out this picture of, of shame, the shame that Babylon's experiencing. Yeah. And, you know, verses 10 through 15, this talk about wizards and spells and the occult uh, seems a, a bit distant, perhaps, for many of us. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think it's interesting to note that in all of Western society, the occult has continued to increase in popularity over the mm-hmm. last 20 years and will continue mm-hmm. to. I read Did you say called- Western or Eastern? Western. Yeah, West, yeah. Yeah, in Western, I think the postmodern shift has something to do with it, but that's a whole other topic. But I read a book about this earlier Let, this year. Let's just pause and just recognize uh, another you would have said the word postmodern and that would have taken up the rest of our podcast. So I, I just want to commend you for your maturity you. and being able to say the word and move on. And I didn't spit either. So it was nice. Yeah. Um, w- whatever. You look at magic, though. I read a book earlier this year that talked about the difference between magic and faith. Magic is where we try to reach up to God. Faith is where we receive God coming to us. Hmm, yeah. And, and that, in many ways, just even bolsters the claim that you made about verse 8, I am important mm-hmm. and no one else. Babylon yeah. is trying to take divine qualities upon herself. Whereas the faithful are going to receive God's coming to us and a great many applications that can be made from there. But I do think that is one of the applications that we could consider is the practices we have that try to reach up to God rather than God coming to us and we receiving it by faith. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's really good. There's more I want to chew on there, but I won't do it out loud. 
right now. <laughs> but yeah, that's really You've helpful. grown as well, Mike. All right. So yeah. <laughs> let's, let, yeah, two years ago, a 30 minute rant. All right. So yeah. let's get into verse, verse chapter 48. Take us through 48. Okay. All righty. So um, again, the, the point of chapter 48 is pretty simple, um, but it's, it's ex- unpacked in a, in pretty f- full ways. But the basic point is this. Despite Israel's faithfulness, Yahweh will overthrow Babylon and lead them out. I'll right? say that so again, one more time. So I'll say it one more time carefully. Despite Israel's faithlessness. There we go. There we go. Yeah. Okay. Despite okay, so Israel's, they're unfaithful. They've been unfaithful. That's been their story. Yep. Despite that, God's still bringing them out of Babylon. Right. And and the the bulk of this chapter explores that faithlessness, explores the the stubbornness of their heart to the point that it says, um, you know, let's notice a few of these lines, right? So they, they hear the people of Jacob who've come from Judah. They swear by the name of the Lord, but the end of verse one, it's not in truth or in righteousness. They call themselves after the Holy city and lean on God, but they're shown to be the stubborn people. So stubborn that, you know, he describes it as uh, their neck is an iron sinew. Their forehead is bronze. Um, and so because of this, God's spoken in a way so that they would know whether he's talking about the things he said through the prophets in the past or the things that he says even now, re- responding to the stubborn. He says things in advance so that they will know no idol told them this, but but that it's God. And And, and so, again, he spends... The first eight verses really just exploring that nine through 11. um, He talks about how he's restrained his wrath and how he's not destroyed them, but refined them in fire. But even all this is not because of any worthiness in themselves, but he's acting for his own namesake, for his own reputation. Again, Israel was to be that light to the nations, and yet they were darkness. And yet, so for God's own reputation among the nations, he's acting to save and to restore. Um, So let me stop there and give you a a chance to interject anything through the first. No, keep going. I have a couple of observations about this chapter, but you you go through yours first. Okay. Yeah. So then uh, basically as we get to chapter, I'm sorry, to, to verse 12, you know, so, so again, the first 11 verses, He's he's talked about how stubborn Israel is and how he's had to even act in ways and, and, and respond in ways with his own proclamation because of their stubbornness. And he finally gets around saying, Babylon's going down. I've loved Cyrus. He'll carry out his good pleasure on Babylon. His arm will be against the Chaldeans, right? Um, God's going to bring this about. And so then... I'll, I'll just read 17 through 22 because this is just a, a, a beautiful sure. um, sort of call at the end. And this, this sort of gets to where this has all been heading. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. I am the Lord, your God, who teaches you to profit, who leads you in the way you should go. If only you'd paid attention to my commandments, then your well-being would have been like a river and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. Your descendants would have been like the sand and your offspring like its grains. Their name would never be cut off or destroyed from my presence. 
you know, he's just described their obstinance and, and, and yet you, you get this, uh, this sort of tender pleading with him. If only you just received the teaching, received the commandments, it would have been, the story would have gone so different for you and your descendants. And yet we get to verse 20, go forth from Babylon flee from the Chaldeans, declare with the sound of joyful shouting, proclaim this, send it out to the end of the earth, say, the Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob, right? You know, you'd expect him to talk about like all that they didn't do, if only they had served him, and then the story ends there, but he's like, but go out anyway, You're, I'm still releasing you from captivity, and he, he hearkens back to that time in the wilderness when God brought Israel from Egypt, and guided them through the wilderness to provide for them and provide water, provide food for them, and and saying, I'm going to do the same thing even now, right? So again, it's just this picture of tenderness and grace and care and compassion that he's having on them, despite their stubbornness and faithlessness. Beautiful. Yeah, it's beautiful. I have a couple of observations about this chapter, but what else would you like to share? No, that that's at least getting us through the the, the flow of the the message here. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. L- looking at a couple of details of it, the first thing I want to note is the differing uses of fire in this text. Mm, yeah. Back in chapter 47, verse 14, talking about Babel or Babylon, same thing. Look, they will be like straw. The fire will consume them. They will not save even themselves from the power of the flame. It will not be cause for warming oneself, not a fire to sit beside. So there the fire is for the destruction of the idolatrous injustice, yeah. Babylon. But yet in 48 verse 10, look, I have refined you, but not as severely as silver, Rather, I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. So here, the fire of God is actually for the testing and the refining of the people. And so for God's people, the fire is not going to consume them. The fire is going to refine them. And so those at Mance look, know the context that I'm speaking about this in. But I do think that's an important note from Isaiah to make here. The, the second point that, that I'd like to consider is verse 11. For my own sake, I will do it for my own sake. I will not let my own reputation be tarnished. I will not yield my glory to anyone else. This is a verse that is very similar to what God says in Ezekiel 36. Mm-hmm. Not for my, not for your sake, but for my sake. Yeah. And, and, and the, these are two passages that I've thought about for a long time. Many staunch uh, determinists of the faith those that claim that God causes every last thing will look at these verses and claim, aha, everything that God does is for his own sake and for his own glory. He doesn't care about anybody else. It's for his glory. So even the bad things that happen are to the glory of God, Mm -hmm. to which I've read these arguments and I walk away disgusted every Mm -hmm. single time. But I think if you look contextually about what God is not wanting to be tarnished here, you go down to verse 17. I, Adonai, am your God who teaches you for your own good, who guides you on the path that you should take. I think in both Ezekiel 36 and also in this passage, God does not want his reputation of covenant love to be tarnished. 
Yeah. It's not that God is a selfish heavenly tyrant who won't yeah. share his reputation with anyone. Yes, mm -hmm. there are many determinists in the faith that will claim that. But rather, this is God not wanting his reputation of covenant commitment to be tarnished. So yeah. I think that's a very important theological note to consider here. Yeah, yeah. It, I mean, it just it, it just another example of of the need to make sure we we seek things in context and and understand the the larger narrative, right? And 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 what the scriptures are sort of speaking against. Right. Uh, as opposed to just importing our own assumptions about our nature and our own jealousy and our own selfish ambition and things like that. And and just saying, oh, yeah, God's doing that. It sounds like the same thing. Um, no, I mean, exactly what you just said. What What is it? What are the implications of God's reputation yes. being as it should be? And you realize, oh, that means. That the, the exaltation and blessing to all nations, right? Um, so anyway. No. Yeah. So if I can close this out, Mike, with yeah. going to a couple of verses that I love here. Whenever we notice verse 21, God is leading his people out as through the desert. Now, if we go to mm -hmm. Hebrews 3, we go to 1 Corinthians 10, the New Testament authors see the current age that we live in as the wilderness. Yeah. We have been taken out of Egypt, but we're not yet in the promised land. And Isaiah is promising us, as we are in the wilderness, God will provide for us. We will not be thirsty. The rock, who is Jesus Christ, will provide for us. And from the splitting of the rock, waters of life will come. Obviously, this is talking about Jesus in the Spirit. Yeah. And then it adds such greater emphasis to verse 16. And now Adonai Elohim has sent me in his spirit. Not only are these two chapters a sobering wake-up call to those who live lives of injustice and idolatry, but these two chapters are also a message of comfort and consolation to those who are in the wilderness, mm -hmm. knowing that God has sent forth his son, God has sent forth his spirit, God has sent forth the rock, God has sent forth the water. And as we walk through the wilderness of this life, we can know that God is with us. Thanks for listening to the Gospel According to Podcast. If you have any questions about what you heard today, please send us a voice message. We would really love to hear from you. Make sure you follow us on social media, subscribe, and click the bell to get notified when we drop a new episode. Until next time, and for all time, your God reigns. Your God reigns.